uh, told me that outside by our trash there was an office chair and uh, I kind of like to look at uh, like furniture that's left on the side of the road. I like to see if it's quality or anything and so I went out and uh, found this chair and it's not a great chair but it happens to match an accent chair I have in my office. It's got kind of a white pattern on it. It's got these little buttons that are kind of holding the upholstery in. And so I thought, you know, this, uh, this kind of matches. So I took a look at the chair and uh, I decided to sit down in it. And immediately sitting down, I started looking like uh, Neo in the Matrix, just kind of <laughs> wobbling all over the place. Um, not only was it uh, leaning way too far back, uh, it was also leaning pretty heavily to the side. Uh, it looks like uh, basically that little hydraulic mechanism in the bottom of the chair had been broken. And on top of that, it also smelled awful. Uh, <laughs> I found that smelling my clothes afterwards. <laughs> uh, it had a really strong odor of smoke. So I'm assuming it came from a, a smoker's home. Uh, but it also had a layer of, uh, I guess, perfume to cover it up. So uh, <laughs> kind of smelled like a house burned down and then someone just <laughs> all around it. But I decided to bring it into my house. <laughs> because I'm going to try to fix this chair. And as I've taken a closer look at it, bringing it in, kind of trying to take it apart, um, I think the, the reason why it's so damaged is it's really been misused. It's been mistreated. So typically with office chairs, they do give you a little bit of a lean. Uh, but rather than leaning just a little bit, it looks like someone was kind of using it almost like a recliner. So leaning back way too far. And doing that over time, that's going to damage that hydraulic mechanism. It's going to damage the casing. And that has caused it to uh, just have this broken, mistreated, misrepaired state on top of uh, just mistreating the fabric with uh, smoke damage, with um, all sorts of perfume cover-ups. Uh, cover and so this chair uh, is broken. It's been mistreated. It's been misused. And for me seeing this chair, I just happen to want to fix it because uh, my personal taste, it, it matches something. But in a, in a much more serious and a much more glorious manner, God also sees things that have been mistreated, sees people who have been mistreated, who've been misused. And he too wants to repair and restore those people, not because they happen to match the set that he has, but because he is compassionate, because he is gracious. And so today, as we are going to dive into scripture, we're going to go to Genesis 16. We're going to see how God treats the mistreated, how God cares for them, how God sees them in their plight and comes to rescue them. Uh, so if you will, turn with me to Genesis 16. And just while you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, just thank you so much for, uh, Lord, just the opportunity to share your word. And I pray, uh, God, that your word would go out 
and would not return void, that it would have impact and power, Lord. And Lord, that ultimately it would show your heart for people who have been mistreated, your heart for people who have been abused, Lord, and that you would comfort them, that you would offer them hope. And so just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies behind Kadesh and Barib. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, just to set up the context for what's going on here, uh, Genesis 12 through 22 is basically all about Abram, or Abraham as he's going to later be called. Uh, God calls Abram, out from uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, a, a Babylonian city, and promises to give him the land of Canaan. And more specifically, uh, the preceding chapter, chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. He promises him to make him a great nation and to give, again, his offspring the land of Canaan. And also, uh, more importantly, to... Uh, make his house a blessing, um, not only to himself, but to the nations. In chapter 15, before God makes this covenant, Abram bemoans the fact that he doesn't actually have any children. 
Um, at this stage, he thinks that really the only way he's going to continue his line is uh, one of his servants, Eleazar of Damascus, is going to just inherit all of his wealth, inherit his house and his name. But God says in Genesis 15, 4 through 5, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So again, this context is that God has made this promise that he is going to have a, a great nation, a great multitude of people coming from him. And this is going to come through the, the means of his own son. He is going to have a son. Despite the fact that he's in his 60s or 70s at this stage, he's going to have a son. And that is where God's promise line is going to go through. Now, we get to chapter 16, and we find that 10 years has passed since that promise, since that covenant. And we can just imagine the situation. Uh, Sarai and Abram have likely been trying to have a child for the last 10 years. It uh, seems obvious, but it does bear mentioning that uh, though God didn't specify who the child would come from, if you're married, typically you're going to have children with your spouse. That's the expected implicit idea there. But after 10 years, it just doesn't seem to be happening. God's made this promise, but uh, a decade's gone by and there's not really any forward movement on it. Uh, God's plan doesn't seem to be panning out. And so Sarai has an idea, an idea to perhaps, if she can't become pregnant, uh, maybe she can still have a child with Abram uh, through her servant Hagar. And again, in the context, you have to think about this with perhaps the impatience, perhaps the desperation that goes into that. But bear in mind as well that God's promise implicitly is that he would have a son. And the idea is, it, is that it would be through his wife even if that's not explicitly stated. Now, this is a very odd passage of scripture, um, at least for our modern ears. Um, no one would think today, you know, we can't conceive, so, you know, we'll just get a second wife and kind of go from there. But in this particular time period, um, the patriarchal period about 2,000 years B.C., um, this practice of surrogate birth was actually relatively common. So the idea was that if you had a, a slave, um, if the uh, woman were to give that slave to her husband, the slave would essentially be a legal extension of her. So if the slave has children, uh, they're technically the children of the mistress. Um, the slave becomes sort of a, a wife, but not of the same caliber, not the same status. Uh, sort of a secondary wife, a concubine. And ultimately, the children, again, are not considered her children, but considered the children of the mistress. And so we find evidence of uh, this practice actually from an ancient Babylonian law code written within a couple hundred years of these events. It's called the Ho uh, Code of Hammurabi. He was a 
uh, king in ancient Babylon. And uh, one of the laws that has uh, direct bearing on this passage, this is the 146th law in this code. If a man take a wife and she give this man a maidservant as wife and she bear him children, and then this maid assume equality with the wife, because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her amongst the maidservants. So we're going to come back to this law in uh, uh, the upcoming uh, section, but just want to show you this practice isn't coming out of the blue for them. This isn't just uh, a bright idea that Sarai had that no one had thought of before. This is basically what you would do. Uh, they were coming from Ur of the Chaldeans. They were ancient Babylonians. Um, and so this custom, this practice, is something that they would have been aware of. It's something that would have naturally uh, been a go-to for them in their situation. But scripture here is not approving of this practice. This practice of surrogate birth through a slave, this practice of polygamy. And so while we read this, uh, I don't want us to think that uh, this is something that uh, God is, is okay with, that this is just happens to be a little side story um, and everything is fine. Uh, scripture makes it clear that this activity, this action that they've taken is really coming from a lack of faith. It's coming from a lack of consideration for God's promise, and it's being done in a way that's ultimately harmful and abusive of Hagar. And what I want to do is show you from Scripture why this is the case. So first reason is that in Genesis uh, 2 and 3, we see that God had an original intention for a marital relationship that is between one man and one woman. And since chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3, we've not seen a change to that. We've not seen God say, by the way, that whole, you know, one man, one woman thing, I'm just going to update that a little bit. You can actually have two, three wives, so forth and so on. Not, not the case. Nothing in the text indicates that anything has changed. Secondly, when we read this passage, admittedly, it doesn't explicitly say anywhere, and by the way, what Abram and Sarai did was wrong, so don't do it. And the reason why we don't have such an explicit statement is has to do with the genre of what we're looking at. So we've been going through Romans um, in the past uh, a few months. And in Romans, Paul is very upfront uh, with what's right and wrong. You know, uh, uh, give yourselves as a, uh, a sacrifice to God. Um, we're going to see later on uh, different ideas about morality. We look at something like the Ten Commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's very clear, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. Very clear, explicit statements of what's right and wrong. But what we're looking at here isn't an ethical letter or teaching letter. It's not a law code. It's a story. And stories, by their very nature, don't always explicitly state the point, nor do they need to. The purpose of the story is to demonstrate 
a moral claim. If I uh, tell you about the boy who cried wolf, um, all of you know what that story is about. The boy, uh, he basically tells the villagers, oh, the wolf's coming, it's going to eat my sheep. They go up, there's no wolf. He does it again, they go up, no wolf. And then finally, a third time he does it, and there's actually a wolf there, but no one believes him. No one is going to believe him because he's lied, because he's made a false alarm. And so his sheep get eaten, and then in some stories he gets eaten as well. Uh, and the purpose of that story is not to make a false report, not to uh, lie. And the story doesn't need to explicitly say that in order to put its point across. And in the same way, this passage and related passages don't need to explicitly state that this is wrong to get that point across. What you do is you infer from the narrative, based on the results of the action, whether a thing is right or wrong. So as you look at other narratives in scripture, where there's not an explicit statement of yay or nay, a wise thing to do is see what's the result of this action. And so we see here that the result of this uh, plan is a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulty that comes from this. We're going to see that uh, Hagar is mistreated. She flees. Um, we see jealousy with Sarai, and we see the same thing play out again in her grandson's life, Jacob and his wives, Leah and Rachel, that they do the same thing. They give their maidservants to Jacob to have children, and it just becomes this back and forth of one-upsmanship and jealousy. And so again, though, polygamy, though this idea of uh, slave surrogate birth is not explicitly condemned, we can infer from the narrative that this is wrong. We can infer that something is amiss. And finally, and uh, perhaps a little more subtly, uh, we can also see why this is wrong, why this is not approved of, by some interesting parallels between this incident and the original fall in Genesis 3. So I have a little chart here. So if you look at chapter 16, there are these very clear uh, uh, lexical verbal parallels. So verse 2 of chapter 16, so she said to, and then chapter 3, verse 2, the woman said to. Um, but then verse 2b, Abram listened to Sarai. Chapter 3, you listened to your wife. This is God making the accusation to Adam. In verse 3 of 16, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband. Verse 3 of Genesis 3, she took of its fruit, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and ate, and she gave also some to her husband. It's something that's a little subtle. It's a little bit hard to get at the first go. But you can see that there are these parallels that uh, just as Adam and Eve uh, were took of the forbidden fruit and sinned against God, so too are Abram and Sarai, basically taking the forbidden fruit of a second wife of Hagar. And by doing so, they are, rather than uh, exemplifying a life of faith, they're exemplifying that faithfulness of Adam and Eve in the fall. And so for all these reasons, uh, we have to conclude that this is not a right thing that they are doing, that this is not God's intention. This is not God's plan, and it's not something 
that God approves of. And so right now, despite being the uh, patriarch, the uh, inheritor of this covenant, uh, Abram and Sarai are not looking good. This is not a <laughs> uh, something you'd want on your resume uh, that you did. This isn't something that uh, you want uh, as an example. And so this is the context, is that we have uh, Hagar is being mistreated. She's being used by Abram and Sarai. And so as we get to verse 4, the last part of verse 4, so we see that she is conceived. Uh, but now we see that Hagar herself perhaps isn't acting perfectly in this situation. Uh, it says that uh, she held Sarai in contempt. The Hebrew is literally, she was small in her eyes. She uh, views Sarai in some capacity as lesser than because Hagar is able to conceive. Clearly the issue isn't with Abram uh, as far as fertility goes. The issue is with Sarai. And so she responds, Hagar uh, responds, in a, a prideful way. And the reality is, is that we're all sinners even if we are mistreated, even if we are abused. And uh, fault can attach itself to all parties to one degree or another. Doesn't excuse any actions that happen, but I think it's important to see that uh, with the exception of Jesus, no one in scripture is a, a perfect example. No one in scripture is absolutely untainted by their sinful nature. And so Hagar herself isn't looking too great in this situation. But what comes next is uh, far exceeds this uh, contemptuous uh, look that she has towards Sarai. Uh, Sarai goes to Abram and she complains, uh, saying that Hagar is now holding her in contempt. She's able to get pregnant, I'm not. And so this is now your problem, Abram, that you have to deal with. May God judge between you and I. Uh, she essentially blames Abram for the situation, even though she's the one who came up with the plan, which in and of itself is another echo of the fall, that spouse is blaming spouse, not taking responsibility for the situation, because ultimately the situation wouldn't have arisen if Sarai hadn't proposed this plan in the first place. And so Abram has a choice uh, of how to respond. But what Abram decides to do is he acquiesces to Sarai in this instance. He tells her, she's your servant, do with her as you will. And so remember that law from the Code of Hammurabi uh, just a, a few uh, minutes ago. Uh, that law has to do basically with a, a very similar situation that uh, this secondary wife, this surrogate mother, holds herself to equal status as the primary wife, as her mistress. And in ancient Babylonian law, if you do that, uh, basically if you lift yourself up beyond your station, you can be reduced back to the level of a slave. Um, it says, uh, you know, become a slave, be counted again amongst the maidservants. And so when Abram says to her, she is your servant, uh, she is under your power, do with her as you please. 
we see Abram not protecting his vulnerable second wife, but allowing this law and this custom to dictate his response that, well, she's your servant, she's your slave, so you can dispense of her however you want. And I think that uh, this is an important piece to consider, um, that there's a difference between what is maybe legal, perhaps what is approved by our cultural institutions, by our customs, and what's actually right, what's actually correct. And so, how many of you have heard of a slap? Not talking about, you know, this kind of slap, but uh, talking about a slap lawsuit. A slap suit, uh, the slap is an acronym, it stands for uh, Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation, kind of a mouthful. Uh, but basically, it's a, a legal strategy where if you are, there's Batman slapping Robin. Uh, <laughs> um, basically, uh, and the way that this typically works out is usually a relatively powerful individual or, or, or entity will file a lawsuit, usually it's defamation, um, against someone who's criticizing them. And the intent of the lawsuit isn't necessarily, you know, that they're actually being defamed, that they really want to win this case because something is, they're being defamed, they're being uh, slandered, but generally it's a strategy to silence their critics. A lot of times you see these suits get filed and there's really no intention that they're gonna win. They know that they're not gonna win. The lawsuit is in some sense frivolous, but what it does is it can intimidate their critic or it can cause them to waste their resources so that they're not able to participate publicly in criticizing them. Uh, there's an example of this of a, uh, basically a doctor um, who was providing like a false cure for cancer um, sued their critic who happened to live in Germany to get them to stop uh, telling the truth about what was going on. And that's another facet of it is you typically shop around for a friendly court so that you can make these sort of uh, frivolous claims. Uh, it's not always legal everywhere, but Virginia is unfortunately a place in the United States, it's very easy to do this. Um, but again, it's a, a practice that by virtue of law, by virtue of custom, it's something you can do, you know, if one of you insults me today, I could, I could slap you. <laughs> but even though I legally could do that, even though I legally could sue you, is that the right thing to do? Is that something moral? Is that something righteous? And we'd have to answer, no. It's not right to file a, a lawsuit against someone to keep them from speaking against you. And in the same way, just because Babylonian law and custom allows uh, Abram and Sarai to uh, demote and demean Hagar, doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean that it is the correct thing to do. And so we see as a result of this, as a result of her demotion from a concubine or secondary wife, Hagar is able to uh, treat 
uh, or excuse me, Sarai is able to treat Hagar harshly. The word uh, here in Hebrew, ana, means to afflict, to oppress. And interestingly enough, it's the same word that Moses uses in Exodus to describe what the Egyptians will do to their Hebrew slaves, that they will oppress them, afflict them, mistreat them. And so here we have Sarai doing this to her maidservant, uh, afflicting and mistreating Hagar. And evidently this is severe enough to the extent that Hagar decides to leave. She decides to flee um, alone as a pregnant woman uh, in the ancient Middle East decides to flee from her mistress. And so, verse 6, she flees. So far, this has been, you know, a, a somewhat curious domestic affair uh, between husband, wife, and wife. But now the story takes a supernatural turn. The story uh, introduces someone who we wouldn't necessarily expect to show up. And the person that shows up is the angel of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, we see appearances of the angel of the Lord. And generally speaking, this is meant to represent that God himself is appearing. Uh, Christian tradition usually identifies this angel of the Lord as a sort of pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, could possibly be, but nevertheless, this uh, individual, this angel of the Lord, speaks with the authority of God, speaks in the first person as God. And so it's safe to conclude that However, the particular theological details work out. This is God appearing. This is God making his presence known. And what's incredible just from this initial appearance is so far in Genesis, God has really only appeared to a couple of people. He appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, he spoke to Noah before the flood. And then he gave a vision to Abram of the covenant and appeared within that vision. But now God, the God of the universe, the God who has made this glorious covenant with Abram is appearing to this slave girl fleeing her mistress. This person who by all intents and purposes is a side character, is an extra to the story. And yet God shows up, God appears for her. And we see the compassionate heart that this stems from right in the first thing that he says to her. The first words that come out of the mouth of the angel of the Lord are Hagar, servant of Sarai. What's interesting about the uh, dialogue in this particular narrative is no one has actually called Hagar, Hagar by her name yet. Every time Sarai and Abram talk about her, they refer to her as servant. They never actually say her name. We only know her name because the narrator gives us that context. Hagar is just the servant, the slave of Sarai and Abram. But here the angel of the Lord acknowledges her as a person, as an individual, Hagar, the servant of Sarai. Not merely a servant, but Hagar, a person, an individual. And so the angel of the Lord proceeds to ask her, you know, where are you going? Where are you coming from? 
what we see by uh, just the sort of geographical detail, she's uh, going in the wilderness uh, by a well near Shur, and that actually directionally is going towards Egypt. So Hagar is an Egyptian, and it appears that as a result of her mistreatment, she is returning home. She's going back to Egypt. And so in response to this question from the angel of the Lord, uh, she doesn't necessarily say where she's going, but she does say that she is fleeing her mistress. She's fleeing Sarai. And in response to this, we see the angel of the Lord say something that uh, maybe in the context would initially trouble us. He tells her, return to your mistress and humble yourself. Now, up to this point, the narrative has really demonstrated to us that Hagar is in many ways a, a victim of the faithless actions of Abram and Sarai. She's been mistreated. She's been anod, uh, oppressed, afflicted. And yet God is telling her to return to that situation. Why would he do that? Why is he saying this? Well, first uh, thing to state about that is, interestingly enough, that word that he says to humble yourself is also the word anah, the same word that means to afflict and oppress, also means to humble, make oneself lowly. And so despite the fact that Sarai has anahed her, has afflicted her, has made her low, God is telling her to return, to anah herself before Sarai, to humble herself. And so this is part of God addressing perhaps the, um, the pridefulness that Hagar had. But this isn't uh, a harsh command. This isn't saying to someone who's being physically abused, go back to your abuser, stay with them. That's the right and the godly thing to do. And I pray that that is not what you get from this because this is not what Scripture is saying. We have to look at the greater context of scripture to see why would God tell Hagar to return. And I think, again, while not explicitly stated in the narrative, we see the context of even the Abrahamic covenant that God will bless those who bless Abram and by extension his family and curse those who curse them and by extension uh, the family. And Abram's household, despite the uh, reality of, of mistreatment, despite the failings that they have as people, that's still the family of promise. This is still the one family on earth at this time that God is working out his redemptive purposes. And so because of that, despite this sticky situation that's occurring, despite the mess that all parties have made of this, this is still the best place for someone to be. This is still the best place is to be amongst that family of promise, to be amongst these people. And we'll see later on when uh, the next chapter that deals with Hagar, um, at the very least, Abram's character has changed, that rather than um, acquiescing immediately to Sarai, he's concerned. Why do you want to get rid of Ishmael and her mother? And that's a whole different narrative and a whole different thing, but... Uh, to assure you, uh, again, this is not meant to be harsh, but this is meant to, again, return Hagar to this family of promise and blessing. And secondly, God doesn't stop there. God doesn't just say, return, 
and kind of leave it ambiguous. He gives her a promise. He gives her a promise that she is going to have a son and that in a similar way to Abraham being a father of many nations, having a multitude of descendants, Hagar herself, Hagar the slave, Hagar the maidservant, is going to have a multitude come from her through Ishmael. God is making a very similar promise, not a redemptive promise in the same way as Abram, but is making this promise of this uh, tangible blessing of descendants. He's going to make a household out of Hagar through her son Ishmael. And we see uh, God kind of describe what he's going to be like. It says he's going to be a wild donkey, his hand against others, and everyone's hand against him. And without diving too much into that, uh, part of that is actually somewhat positive. Um, Ishmael is sort of traditionally viewed as uh, the sort of progenitor of the Bedouin people. So people who live on the outskirts of society who are nomads and traveling. So being a wild donkey in that context, wild donkeys like the wilderness. So Ishmael is going to like the wilderness. He is going uh, to be a wild person and so will his descendants. And so God, again, he tells Hagar to return to Sarai. We have this implicit notion of that this is the household of blessing which she's returning to. And we also have this tangible promise that she is going to have a great nation come from her. And so Hagar concludes this interaction not by... Uh, getting super excited about this particular promise, but by acknowledging the compassion of this God that has appeared to her. She calls God the God of seeing because he has seen her affliction. Hagar is the only woman in the Old Testament to give a name to God. She's the only woman in the Old Testament to whom the angel, or well, she's the first, excuse me, to whom the uh, angel of the Lord appears, and she's the only woman who gets to name a place. Uh, we see uh, Abraham naming a lot of places as he sojourns through Canaan, but here we have Hagar doing this. And so in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this tale of mistreatment, Hagar recognizes that she has been seen by God, that he has heard her in her affliction, that despite the fact that she has no legal power or standing, despite the fact that she's been mistreated, despite the fact that her uh, masters view her simply as the servant, God has seen her as Hagar. God has seen her as someone who has been afflicted, and he sees her because of his compassion. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In this story, we see a lot of human sinfulness. We see a lot of brokenness and faithlessness. But what ultimately shines through is the fact that God is the one who sees people in these situations. God is the one who responds to this mistreatment, not with uh, ignorance, ignoring it, not with chastisement, but with great rescue and promise. 
And so as we see this, again, I want you, if, if nothing else, to see the heart of God for those who are mistreated and afflicted, that God sees you in that, that God sees your circumstances, and that God cares, God sees and cares and wants to rescue. And we see that in our own lives principally through the fact that God has seen us and rescued us from our sin through his son, Jesus. And so with this passage, just bringing this to a conclusion, um, we can draw from it a, a few things. One, I, I hope we all know that polygamy isn't a good thing, uh, just in case anyone was thinking about that. Um, but we also see that uh, even faithful or uh, people of faith can sin, can mess up as we see with Abram and Sarai. But ultimately, we see that despite mistreatment, despite um, being made nameless, despite being afflicted or abused, God sees and God cares. And so I hope today uh, that as you go from here that you would praise and glorify this God who sees you if you've been mistreated, who sees you if you've been afflicted, and that his heart is towards rescue, his heart is towards compassion. So as Pastor Toby comes up to lead us into communion, just pray that that would be on your heart and mind as you go from here today.